Red Cloaks Radio is a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Welcome to Red Cloaks Radio. I'm Jesse, and joining me today is my co-host. Hi, I'm Laura Venesee. I'm with the Red Cloaks as well. I'm Karen Rose with the Boston Red Cloaks. And we're pleased to introduce Senator Brendan Crichton, whose district is 3rd Essex in Massachusetts, which consists of Lynn, Linfield, Swampscott, and Marblehead, Nahant, and Saugus. And we're thrilled to have you here today, Senator. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much, Jesse, Laura, and Karen, and, and all, for all to all the Red Cloaks for all that you've done uh, and continue to do for uh, our Commonwealth. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. We're so excited you're here. We're really excited about all the work that you have done. You were first elected to the House in, uh, I believe it was... It was uh, 2014. Uh, you were elected to the Mass Senate in 2017. And uh, you reside in Lynn. You were recently in the last uh, session, uh, legislative session, you were the chair of the Joint Housing Committee. And now you are the chair in this next session, 2021. You're the chair of the Joint uh, Committee on Financial Services and the vice chair of, for Joint Revenue. We were particularly imp- moved during the hearings, the Senate hearings for the, the Massachusetts Roe Act last December when you stood to give your, the reasons for your support when you said that your district has the highest rate of teenage pregnancy in in Massachusetts and that these are primarily teenagers of color, uh, we were were shocked. It was something that we just didn't know. And a a couple of weeks later, the Boston Globe published a very in-depth article on the uh, desegregation, or I, I should say segregation that remains in the school system throughout Massachusetts. And there was a big focus on Lynn. So we started thinking about, well, here's a housing quality issues, racial isolation of these children and uh, combining that with teen pregnancy. Well, there's a, uh, there's a definition for exploring intersectionality how these issues coincide and then lead us to try to find a solution for teenagers. So first, you know, thanks again for having me on here. And, you know, obviously during the uh, debate around the Roe Act, you know, we had so many great champions of this issue. When you think of uh, uh, Senator Chandler, obviously um, at the forefront, but also, you know, the Senate president for uh, pushing this forward uh, to make it a priority during, um, as we're fighting a, a pandemic with very limited bandwidth to pursue many of our legislative priorities. So, you know, at that point, we were looking to, you know, pass our budget, which was long overdue. Um, and we had a handful of conference committees that we needed to resolve uh, in that extended session. So for you know, this to be a priority, I think it speaks, you know, great measures of, for both the House and the Senate um, that, uh, this was something we, we couldn't wait on. And, you know, for me, I, I generally, you know, th- there's so, so many talented folks and leaders in the Senate that, you know, I try to speak on the Senate floor when I'm going to provide something of value in addition to what's already been said. You know, I don't want to just repeat uh, what other folks have said and, and for many that have been fighting the fight far uh, longer than I in the Senate. So on this particular issue, you know, it was kind of a, a last minute decision and, you know, having conversations 
conversations with constituents, with other colleagues leading up to this, you know, it became pretty clear around the issue around parental consent that, you know, we were kind of, you know, the fear mongering was, was working, you know, a bit, I think on folks and, you know, people would always say, would you want your daughter, you know, go, go make a decision like this without talking to you. I started just thinking more about it. And like, no, I, I wouldn't, you know, for any decision that my daughter who's you know, one and a half now, like anything in her life when she's having to, like, obviously I, I would want her to come to me and talk to me, but that fear shouldn't drive my decision on a bill that's meant to provide access uh, to reproductive care for, for everyone. And, you know, not every child is being raised, uh, you know, in a home where they could go to their parents on that, whether or not, you know, there's, you know, domestic violence or mental health issues or substance misuse issues. You could be being raised by an uncle or a grandparent. Um, you know, you could have, there's so many, you know, barriers to having that conversation. Um, and, you know, the numbers show that it's, you know, harming, you know, communities of color uh, in, a, in a far greater way. And then the other alternative to go before a judge, like just, I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever, but put yourself in the shoes of a young person that's dealing with this you know, difficult decision, difficult time, and your high school is hard enough. And then, you know, you're having this come up and you can't talk to your parents for whatever reason. So you're going to have to find a way to leave school, go to I mean, one of the more intimidating, you know, buildings uh, in society, a courtroom and nothing against you know, the court system, but it's, I've only been there a few times and it's, it's intimidating. So I just felt like, you know, putting ourselves in the issues, but also, you know, admitting, you know, being honest about my feelings as uh, a dad provided some value. And, um, you know, it was, it was, you know, one of the more memorable parts, I think, of being an elected official and I've been a city council for, for um, six years and then a you know, rep for three and now senator for three and uh, you know that certainly will that whole debate not just my speaking part obviously uh, you know will certainly be something i remember for quite some time that was a long response um i'm happy to slide into the the issues around school segregation um you know obviously the, the teenage pregnancy rate so i i may have misspoke on the floor um in terms of saying we have the highest, you know, we have one of the highest, we're, we're number five uh, as of 2015. And I don't know if there's more recent data, but throughout my time uh, working in public service, I, I was an aide to Senator McGee, who was my predecessor. Um, and that's going back to 2005. This was always an issue that he cared very deeply about. And Lynn was always up there in, in the, on the higher end of this. As many gateway cities are just gonna consistently uh, be in that bracket, um, you know, on the segregation end of things, you know, our our school population has increased considerably um, over the past few years, and uh, we've really seen significant um, changes to our demographics here as a city in general. So, you know, like, I mean, nationally, schools are more segregated than any time during the since the 1960s, um, but in Massachusetts. The number of intensely segregated non-white schools have increased 51%. Um, and again, it's primarily due to demographic changes. I don't think these are, you know, efforts to segregate necessarily, but those, those issues you point to, um, you know, access to housing, um, the quality of our school buildings, and I, I would throw transportation in there too. All of those issues have led to different shifts in people deciding, you know, where they want to live. And, 
uh, in Lynn, the percentage of schools that are intensely segregated non-white schools increased from 12%, 12.5%, excuse me, to 36% in the last decade. Um, and then you look at our school buildings, you have almost half, 11 of our schools are over 100 years old. Um, so, you know, we're looking at policies that, you know, not Lynn specific by any means, but that would help gateway cities largely be able to fund new schools. The system we have in place right now is antiquated and we're not able to do so. Um, so we filed a bill on that, but then also wanted to take a closer look at the issue of segregation in schools generally and also um, uh, in terms of housing. Uh, so we're, we're not saying we have the answers by any means. We're just highlighting a problem and it's been great to see the Globe and other folks, including your organization, you know, uh, recognize that there's a problem in that, you know, we can't sit around, that we need to have this conversation as difficult as it may be. I, I wasn't around, you know, for, for busing in the 70s. I, I don't have those memories, but it's still fresh in many people's minds. And I think um, this session, there'll be more, and there've been a few other legislators filing bills as well. We want to raise the level of this uh, discussion and, and really, you know, have, have a difficult conversation, which is why we're here. In 2017, the voters in Lynn rejected a bid to, to construct uh, two new schools. Uh, what was their rejection based on? So it, it was a very complicated time. You know, there were many reasons for people to vote no. I would say the biggest was the financial situation um, that we were in as a city. So uh, we would have, you know, it would have caused. Uh, would have had to raise people's taxes essentially um, to pay for this, which, you know, in communities that are more affluent, that may not be as big a problem. Or if we had more revenues as a city and a bigger tax base, it wouldn't be as a problem. Um, I think we're, you know, some of that is improving. Uh, but, you know, when the state, you know, the formula they have set up seems very generous, right? So they would pay 80% for a city like that. I mean, we would argue, what, why is the 80% even? You know that cap even necessary when the 80% turns out to be more like 60% when a number of factors are in play. And if we're going to have communities voting down or not being able to pay for these schools, the formula is not working. And it's not just Lynn, we've seen it across, um, across the state. So, um, you know, our bill would uh, remove that 80% cap. It would more, you know, it would take into account low income students in a better way right now, there's an artificial cap and you know everyone's kind of treated the same after you have a certain percentage of low-income students. We would argue that you know, in our district, we have you know, extreme poverty in many instances and that we, we simply can't afford to build schools with the current formula. And then even just the square footage reimbursement rates, they're, they're, they're old, they don't make sense, they don't align up to the costs of construction in today's world. So um, we're not saying the MSBA who funds school projects is you know, at fault, we're saying the formula is at fault and um, we want to fix these pieces, but also double the amount of money we're spending on schools. We're never going to catch up. I mean, even in Lynn alone, 11 schools over hundred years old, like, uh, so you ask why are people moving? Why middle-class families, you know, starting to move out of Lynn? We don't have a, a school system that's, or, sorry, I, I, we don't have school buildings that are suitable for a 21st century learning environment. Uh, we only, we only have really one recent school that was built and it's a gem, uh, but we need 11 more. Um, so, you know, it's not gonna solve all the problems in, in the world, but um, it's 
probably the biggest factor and probably the biggest thing on people's minds right now. Through a different project, I've been able to meet the director of public health and some of the school nurses in Lynn. And I want to just emphasize what you're saying. The school system itself is completely different than the buildings where people are are generating a lot of um, really additional attention during this pandemic, especially to make sure that kids are being taken care of. And the partnership between the schools and the city is very strong, stronger than in many other locations. The question of the buildings, though, I appreciate you're saying also the budget needs to be greater. It just needs to be more money for the school buildings because there's no other way for anyone to catch up. Cost now, it's not even, it's more than like $700 a square foot. It's people don't really think about these new high school buildings. Also, they, you're talking about an opportunity to build more sustainable places, but also different learning environments. And technology was not in, you know, no computers 100 years ago. There's also really no reason based on the zip code you live in, you should have a better school. We have public schools that are meant to be for everyone in the Commonwealth to have a chance to learn and thrive. Looking at it that way, if you thought of it as just a collective school system statewide, it would be very different than every tub on its own bottom. No, absolutely. Those are all great points. Uh, hope you can come testify at the hearing <laughs> when we have. Thank you. I'll be there. <laughs> so into all of this, how would the Healthy Youth Act assist these teenagers who are at risk and what is the resistance? What is the resistance? Is there resistance in Lynn? I don't know that there's resistance in Lynn. And, um, you know, like um, Jesse had mentioned, our um, public health leaders and our school leaders here do tremendous work uh, in very difficult circumstances. You know, I couldn't speak district to district to be honest what's going on. For me, this bill has been common sense for, you know, as long as it's been around. We want to educate our youth on making healthy decisions and whether it's comfortable for you to talk about or not, you know, our, you know, students are sexually active um, or they may choose not to, but they should have every, every available piece of information there accessible to them. Really, I could not say what the resistance is. We've passed it three times, I believe in the the Senate, you know, I, I assume we'll continue to pass it again. I think building off the success we had with Roe, this is the next logical step to get something done. So I'm, I'm hopeful this, this session, fear-mongering, you know, it's the scariest thing, I think, for folks, like, while you're getting calls from constituents or, you know, reading uh, emails or, uh, you know, articles on this, and, you know, that big, uh, the fear of the unknown, of, you know, what could these students possibly learn that they are, or, you know, losing that power as a parent, you know, in your mind to, to educate your students, it's just not there in reality, right? Like, you know, fear is a powerful thing that compels us to make bad decisions oftentimes. So taking a step back and just realizing you still have that power to have a conversation with your child um, and they're getting access to, you know, scientifically credible information that's going to help inform them on not just better, you know, reproductive decisions, but also, you know, healthy decisions in terms of relationships, right? Like it's, it's a no brainer. And I think it's the most powerful tool we could use right now, building off of some of the progress we've made in other areas. So um, I'm hopeful we can put aside the fear of the unknown, recognize that anytime Massachusetts has gone progressive on some of these policies, the sky hasn't fallen, right? So like back when we were talking about public accommodations a few years ago, when I was on the city council uh, in Lynn, uh, you know, I worked with different groups and they came and said, we want to get a local ordinance on this to build, you know, to help trans folks in your community and to, to build that effort to push the state in the right direction. And I remember I was, you know, a little younger at the point, a little less experienced and thinking like, there's no way I'm going to get these. I mean, there was, just, there was some older, more conservative councils on there on board. We got them on board and it passed in, you know, 
there was really no opposition whatsoever. And then when I came to the house, you know, same thing. I just didn't think this, it was too, the fear of the unknown was too great. And then, you know, to credit to the leadership in the Senate of the house, passed it through. And guess what? The sky hasn't fallen at all. And in fact, you know, we've created more equality in the state and um, have hopefully helped reduce some of the stigma around some of these things. In, in my experience, anytime, you know, we take a common sense measure, push aside the irrational fears and move it forward, um, it just makes for a much better society. And um, I, I, I hope we can get it done this session. You talk about um, fear and assuaging those fears. I think about the power that would a teenager would have in knowing knowing the truth and being able to make decisions on how he or she's going to live the life it must be a huge boost to their self-esteem and their ability to believe that they have and can continue to have control over their destiny as much as anybody does. You talked about, made some really, really good points about uh, the fear mongering. People don't want to admit that their children are sexual, even <laughs> even when they're 20 years old, for that matter. But so I, I think that Lynn must be a pretty exciting place now to be able to open up new ideas and make people aware and actually, uh, actually bring them to advocate. Absolutely. And um, Karen, to your point, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think access to information is so empowering and it's going it's, it will empower our youth. So, you know, why deprive them of these, these valuable, you know, whether it's science or even just, you know, again, on, on relationships, on, um, you know, a, a wide range of issues. Why deprive our, our students of this information? I mean, we're trying to inform them. That's why, you know, we're, they're there as educators. You know, it's long overdue, but there are many uh, students right now hungry for this information and we shouldn't have to lead them into adulthood by depriving them of you know, valuable information that could impact their lives and relationships. And on the Lynn end of it, it's, I, I love my city. This is where I was born and raised, raising a family here now. And you know, we, have, we got a bad rap. Uh, I'm not sure if, if you're aware of that, but you know, Lynn Lynn City of Sin is a poem that I had to listen to my whole life, but we have uh, made tremendous progress. We really have great diversity in the city. It's always been diverse since you know, I had been here, but even growing more so. And so many uh, young leaders really emerging right now and fighting for these types of progressive policies. So we have a lot of work to do, but I'm excited with the progress we've made and we'll continue to build off. It makes a big difference, honestly, the fact that you're a white male advocate for all of the things that you are standing for. Because I think in terms of moving forward in this next generation of leaders, we need to have representatives represent everybody, which you're doing, and to represent your whole community. I think when you when you pointed to both of you talking about the public schools and what the curriculum looks like, the fact is that it's it's kind of a systemic embedded racism, patriarchal norm to not talk about how people can become pregnant and what happens, because the only people who are going to get pregnant are going to be the people with the uterus. So if you don't teach, the only people who are gonna end up potentially you know, lacking knowledge and then getting pregnant are some of the people. So it's, you know, it's important to strip these things away. And it's really helpful that you're out there talking about it. Well, thank you. And, um, you know, I should say too, that I'm inspired, you know, again, by our, our leader, our youth leaders, uh, but you're seeing more and more people of color and more women getting involved uh, with politics and government and, you know, many running for office, but also, uh, you know, staying engaged 
with us. So obviously uh, a diverse city like Lynn, we want the representation to reflect that. Uh, I'm coming saying that as a white male, but uh, we've been really working closely with the, the youth of Lynn and I've learned so much from them. You know, they are always so generous with their thanks for the time we spend, but I walk away feeling, you know, more empowered, more informed. And those are the, the types of meetings and conversations that make this job so great. And I, I really love my current role and I look forward to working with your organization too, more on all this. We, um, this is the first time we're, we're meeting, but it seems like we have a lot of shared priorities. In fact, that leads me to my next question. What would help you the most? Many of our listeners want to know, want to get involved. Yes, it is a, you know, a handful of bills that I think we're not going to be able to move unless, you know, we make some noise, uh, frankly. So, you know, I'm talking about the school bill. That's it. You know, it seems like common sense, but it's, it's a major change that, um, you know, people have been calling for for years, but it hasn't, hasn't really budged much. So, you know, on that end, we're not alone in Lynn. I, I would think every gateway city would want to be a part of it, or even if you're not, right? So, I mean, public schools, you know, it shouldn't be, they shouldn't be determined by a zip code or, or uh, you know, a town border. Uh, so I think everyone should want to build more school. I mean, it benefits everyone in this. So for that end, you know, maybe we could be in touch about as, you know, I, I assume hearings are going to be remote, but you know, maybe that even gives some folks a better ability to sneak in testimony during uh, the workday or if you have children around. For the past few sessions, I've been working on uh, what we call the Work and Family Mobility Act. So that would be the bill that allows all eligible Massachusetts residents to earn a driver's license. So this would allow for undocumented immigrants to earn a driver's license. And um, I think it does, you know, it does play a factor where, you know, many of these other issues we're talking about when you talk about access to jobs and access to uh, education or healthcare or any of these things, we are for no good reason, you know, forcing many of the folks that have worked on the front lines during this pandemic, um, you know, our neighbors, our, you know, classmates, our family, you know, a huge part of our economic base, we're telling them you have to break the law anytime you want to leave your house. And even like in greater Boston, right, it's, you know, we have a public transportation system, but it's, it's broken and it's not, uh, you know, accessible or affordable or, you know, reliable. Think about out in Western Mass or some of these other places that, I mean, you have to own a car to drive. We want to join the 16 other states that have passed, uh, you know, similar legislation and uh, it's, it's long overdue. We, we've been able to build a really strong coalition. We got it out of committee last session, which is the first time that's ever happened, but uh, we need to get it voted on and passed into law. We recently successfully advocated for Lynn's commuter rail to be included in phase one of electrification with the Massachusetts, with the MBTA uh, Fiscal and Control Board. So that would mean more frequent service at subway rates. Right now, you'd have to pay $7 from Lynn to Boston, which folks in my community, even middle class folks, can't afford $7 one way trip, not to mention parking and then paying if you need to transfer. So we're saying it should be more, we always wanted the blue line to come to Lynn. But we feel like this is a, a project that by just electrifying it, you'd create more frequency and then we can drop the price and people in Lynn would actually use a commuter rail, which we just don't right now. So the only way we got that, I think, included was by getting every organization in Lynn to show up at the control board and to, to show that this isn't just, you know, a transportation issue that it cuts across all sectors, as does all, I mean, all the issues we're talking about here. So I just say that to say that, you know, Lynn has a strong grassroots uh, organization and we should be having more connections with groups like yours. For the Working Family Mobility 
I have two fantastic house co-sponsors in uh, Christine Barber and Trish Father Bouvier. We have a new state senator, Adam Gomez uh, from Springfield, who's been leading on this issue as well, who's a lead sponsor along with me. Well, we have certainly had a great conversation this morning and you're opening, you're expanding our horizons as well. The more we look, the more we see how we are related to one another in our goals and in our strivings and in our celebrations. And we are so pleased to have been able to welcome you today. And we thank you for this outstanding work that you are doing. It doesn't necessarily get the headlines, but it changes people's lives. Thank you, Karen. I appreciate the kind words. And again, for this opportunity to chat, um, this was great. And hope to uh, come back and we'll continue to work with you on all these shared priorities. Excellent. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Red Cloaks Radio, a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Find us at bostonredcloaks.com and have a great day.